tell you how excited I am to be here. For the last couple of years, I've wanted to come and be a part just of a service. I've heard some incredibly awesome things about what God's doing here at Southridge. And of course, with pastoring, it makes it a little difficult sometimes to come and and visit. But I am so glad that uh, God worked it out for us to be here today. And I just can't tell you uh, how excited, how impressed we are with what God is doing in this place. Um, A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity of going to a conference uh, where your pastor was speaking at, and it's just incredible the testimony that you guys have, not just here in this city, but literally uh, across the state. There are a lot of churches that are looking to what you guys are doing, everything from a lot of the outreaches that you do in the community, uh, even the one you just recently did around Christmas time with the uh, Christmas trees. There's a lot that you're doing that other churches are taking cues from. They're learning from you. And so I know you're a young church, but you're a very influential church. And I just want to commend you for your faithfulness. Um, I really believe with all of my heart, as I'm kind of watching from a distance, uh, that the best is yet ahead for you guys. Um, the, man, the, the stage has been set, uh, so many exciting things taking place, and I want to just encourage you with uh, all that God is doing, because sometimes when you're up close, you don't always get to see it from the same vantage point from those of us who are kind of looking from uh, far away, and it's just amazing. I, I enjoyed the worship this morning for a church this age. You guys got just fantastic worship. For those of you guys that are leading, that's awesome. Let me just commend you for that, and I'm excited about just what God has for you in the days ahead. I I honestly believe this. I believe 100 years from now, uh, as they're writing the history of San Jose, I I honestly think that they're going to have a hard time writing its history without mentioning the impact of this church on the city of San Jose. And uh, I believe God's using you, not just in these walls. I, I believe that your strength is what happens outside these walls and how God's using you in just some phenomenal ways. And so let me just encourage you with that. And Uh, Let me say once again, happy Valentine's Day. So I hope uh, this is going to be a good one for you guys. I've got my Valentine date with me in church, my wife, uh, Jenny, and uh, we have been married almost 13 years now. So we've got three children who are over in Ridge Kids right now, and uh, Ashlyn is our oldest. She's uh, 10, and then we have a son, Anderson. He is nine, and then our youngest son, Landon, uh, he's six years old. And so they're enjoying some time with their cousins and uh, Uncle Micaiah took them. They had a great time yesterday. They were telling me all about some of the fun stuff they got to do, and then they told me they had carrot pizza. So I don't know what I don't know what what it is about the Bay Area. We were watching Inside Out, and they were putting broccoli on pizza, and now they come up here, and you guys are putting carrots on their pizza. They're a little confused about what pizza is supposed to be like here in this area, but uh, we're just we're so glad to be here and thankful uh, for this incredible opportunity. Well, if you'll allow us, let's dive into the Word of God. I'm excited to be kind of being a part of beginning this series from 1 John here, Once Upon a Marriage. And I do want to say from the outset, though much of what I'll talk about specifically in its illustrations and application will have to do with marriage, the principles that we're going to share, I really believe, can be applied to any relationship. So whether we're talking about family relationships, maybe with a parent, uh, maybe a relationship you, ha- you have with a brother or coworker, uh, neighbor, uh, whatever the case may be, these principles that we're going to see in the Word of God will apply. So 
as I work through this passage, and maybe you're sitting here and, and you're, you're not married, I don't want you just to kind of check out and think, oh, this is not for me. These principles will apply to any relationship that you find yourself in. Though in our illustrations and our applications, we are going to, in light of Valentine's Day, apply it to marriage. So don't allow that to kind of confuse you at all. So let's dive on in here. First John chapter number four. We're going to begin in verse 10. We'll read verse 10, verse 11. We'll have a word of prayer and then go from there. All right, here's what the Bible says, 1 John chapter number 4, verse 10. Herein is love. So the Apostle John is basically standing up and he's saying, I'm going to tell you what love actually is. This is love right here. What is it? All right. He says, not that we loved God. So he's going to lay the foundation and he's going to say the type of love that we express to God, the type of love that we can express to one another. He says, this isn't the deepest type of love that exists. He says, it's not the type of love that we show him, but he goes on to say in verse number 10, but that he loved us here in his love, the type of love that he has for us. And so sent his son, of course, we know Jesus Christ to be the Here's a big fancy word, propitiation. So what's that mean? It, it just basically means substitute, our replacement for the penalty of our sin. And so this is what love is, that Jesus became our replacement for the punishment we deserved for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one Another. Let's have a word of prayer here at this time, and then we'll dive into our service here today, shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for an opportunity for us to gather together here as your people. Lord, I realize that this morning is Valentine's Day, and I thank you for the music and the worship that forced us to focus on the great love that you have for us. And I pray that your love for us would really inform that it would uh, define the type of love that you want to pour through us towards one another. I pray that you would bless, Lord, this time together. Uh, use this service, Lord, in a way that only you can do what I can't do, and that speak to the hearts of people, God. I'm praying that your spirit would do that. And for maybe an individual who specifically needs what will be shared this morning, I pray that you will allow, Lord, just the message of your word, not my personality, Lord, not uh, what I might say or not say, but Lord, your word to influence, Lord, hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was traveling, I was speaking in the Midwest, and so I was flying out east, and uh, as I was going through one of the airports on a layover, I noticed on the bathroom stalls, kind of outside the bathroom, there were these little like mural type things, and there was no words on it, it just had the little icon of a tornado. How many of you have ever seen these when you're going through an airport and just kind of outside the restroom and it says tornado shelter? I thought that was a little bit interesting. I thought, man, we don't have a whole lot of that when we look at our airports in California. And honestly, I, I didn't even think a whole lot about it. And so we uh, made our way to the terminal where I was going to get on the plane and I was sitting there on the plane. And as I was, as I was getting into the terminal where the plane was, there was these uh, large kind of glass hallway type things. And so we were walking through these glass terminal hallways that were going to lead to the where we were going to get onto the plane. And as I was looking out, I mean, it was just incredibly cloudy, very ominous, kind of in the dark, stormy clouds. 
grounds there, and we were getting onto the plane, and we were sitting there for a little while, when all of a sudden, before we had gotten the engines going, uh, the captain came over the loudspeaker, and he says, uh, just need to let you know, uh, we have heard that a tornado is coming toward the airport, and uh, we've been asked to evacuate the plane immediately. And so all of a sudden, my heart kind of goes up in my chest a little bit. Uh, from California, we have to deal with earthquakes and some of those types of things, forest fires where I'm from. But uh, tornado is definitely not anything uh, that I've been prepared for personally. And so, of course, everybody's rushing off the airplane, and, and we were running through that air where those kind of glass hallway was. And sure enough, miles in the distance, you could see where tornado was starting to touch down and come toward the airport. And so everybody's kind of moving through the airport. And I'm thinking, what, where, in the world, where in the world are you supposed to go? You know, what, what is it that you're supposed to do? And uh, sure enough, everybody is just piling in to all the restrooms. And now for the first time, these little icons made perfect sense. And so we're crammed in there and uh, nobody it wasn't like men's and ladies and all that. It was just, you know, every man for himself. And so they're kind of cramming in there. And so I'm like crammed into this little stall and there's these guys and ladies. We're all just kind of just crammed into this uh, uh, um, restroom there. And we're just kind of waiting because we don't know what's going to happen next. And so I remember I, I took out my uh, cell phone and I started texting my wife and I was like letting her know what was going on. And there's a tornado coming. And, you know, we were, I was just kind of, you know, texting and, and things like that. And we were kind of uh, back and forth a little bit. And, and th- no joke, uh, this was Jenny's response. She, she texted me, yikes, I hope your plane is not delayed. Happy face <laughs> emoji. <laughs> and I texted back, yikes, I hope I don't die. <laughs> Sad emoji. <laughs> I, I, we, were, we were texting back and forth. I wrote, I, I, if I don't make it through this thing, I just want you to know, man, I've loved being married to you. This is awesome. Sure enough, the tornado kind of headed a different direction. Nothing kind of came about. It was about half an hour later. They came over the loudspeakers. They said everything was fine. Everything had cleared up. And about an hour, hour and a half later, uh, they allowed our flight to take off. And, and this morning, I, I want to kind of uh, talk a little bit about this subject of marriage. And I know I've been joking about it a little bit here, but the truth is this. Uh, in America today, there is somewhat of a marriage meltdown going on right now. Uh, marriages, uh, more marriages ending in divorce than staying together. Uh, for the first time in American history, there are now more single adults uh, than there are married adults. Uh, there's a, uh, some of you might be familiar with this. How, how many of you now realize you can actually rent wedding rings. How many of you are aware of this? And so these are for, you know, couples that are not so sure that the whole thing's going to work out. You can rent a wedding ring and uh, that way you're not spending all the money if, if you know, things don't kind of quite work out quite right. And uh, recently they've been advertising what is known as uh, five and 10-year marriage plans. And so that, that way you don't have to go through the whole hassle of divorce and all the things that go with that. Just right from the very beginning, you can ride it together and you can just sign up for one of these five or 10-year marriages because people are so disillusioned that the things will last anyways, where they can just get into it for five years. After five years, you know, we, each person kind of goes their way and it's all kind of settled in advance. And I bring these things up just to kind of mention and point to the reality that there 
there is somewhat of a relational breakdown and it's being expressed within the realm, within the space of marriage most predominantly. And yet the reality is it's not just a marriage breakdown. It really is a relationship breakdown. In America, we don't know how to have healthy relationships. And so that magnifies itself within the context of marriage. It was a theologian by the name of Timothy Keller who said this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And I think we're going to throw this on the screen. But due to our sin nature, he said, all, notice this word, all individuals are fundamentally incompatible. He doesn't skirt around the issue. He just basically says because of our sin nature, because we're human, we are all fundamentally incompatible, and therefore marriage will, not could, not might, marriage absolutely, 100% will bring out the worst in you. How's that for a positive, uplifting Valentine's you know, message here this morning? Will bring out the worst in you. He goes on to say this, therefore, the goal is not to keep looking until you find someone who is compatible but rather to figure out how to deal with incompatibility scripturally within the marriage that you already have. There might be some people here and you're like, man, I need a new spouse. If you knew how bad she was, if if you knew how crazy he was, you'd understand. I I need a new spouse. I I will say this. You, You might need a new marriage. But you can get a new marriage with the old spouse. And that's what we're going to unpack a little bit today. <laughs> how, do we, how do we experience a new marriage with the spouse that we have? How do we keep the relationships that God's given us intact? Now, to lay some foundation as we're going to dive into this a little bit, the Bible speaks of love using three terms. In the English language, we have basically one word for love. It's the word love. And we use love, the word love, for all kinds of crazy things. We talk about, you know, how much we love our football teams. We talk about how much we love a certain brand of clothing. We talk about how much we love our spouse. And we just kind of use this term to kind of talk about all of these different areas and arenas. But the reality is, in the original Greek language in which the scriptures were written, there were several different words that got used to identify different concepts of love. And you might be familiar with these. So as we lay the foundation, I want to kind of share, with the, share these with you, and then we'll get going into our message. And number one, we talk about phileo love. This is in the original Greek language. They had several words for love. The word phileo, it's kind of where we get our root for uh, Philadelphia, phileo, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Phileo is this brotherly type of love. It's this friendship type of love. It's a, it's a type of love like I'm there for you if you'll be there for me. You know, it's kind of like I got your back, you get my back type of idea. It's a friendship. It's kind of a mutual gratificational type of love, a brotherly love, a friendship type of love. Uh, then there's eros type of love. This is the type of love uh, that speaks of the sensual sides of love, the, even the sexual sides of love, eros types of love. And then there's a word that the Bible often uses, and that's the word agape, the agape types of love. This is the unconditional type of love. 
This is pure love. This is a love that's not seeking anything in return. This love is primarily motivated and focused on what it can give to a relationship. It is not motivated and focused on what it can get from a relationship. And so when we read in 1 John chapter number 4, verse 10, herein is love. It's an, it, the, the Greek word that's being used here is not phileo. It's not saying herein is phileo, not brotherly love. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying herein is eros or erotic or sensual love. That's not the word that's being used here. It is herein is agape. Herein is pure love. Herein is unconditional love. This is the noblest types of love. This is, the, this is, this is what real love is. And so what the Apostle John is saying here, he's, he's saying in a very real way, he makes the case that it is what Christ did when he propitiated us. That's the word that's used in verse 10. When he became our substitute, when Jesus went to the cross and became our, uh, he, he took the penalty for our sins, he took our punishment. John is saying, this is what real love actually looks like. This is real love. It's what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he took the punishment for your sin, when he suffered and when he died in your place. The Apostle John says, this is true love. It is therefore the cross and Jesus' approach to the cross that must inform our deepest notions as to what true love really is. Okay, And a lot of us, we might get our ideas of love from a lot of different places. Uh, some of us might get our ideas of love uh, from the you know, next rom-com or the next romantic comedy that comes out. And, and uh, maybe some people get their ideas of love from self-help books or from Harlequin novels or from their past relational experiences or from pop culture or from what they're seeing in People magazine or from their peers. There's a lot of places that will seek to inform our perspective of what love is supposed to look like. And yet the Apostle John stands up and he says, hey, you're not going to find an accurate perspective of love in pop culture. You're not going to find an accurate perspective of love in the next rom-com. You're not going to find an accurate perspective of love in your past relationships. You're not even going to find a proper perspective of love in the way you've been loved by parents, in the way you've been loved by a, a ex, in the way you've been loved by a spouse or by a child. He says the only way you can accurately understand what real love is, is to look to the cross of Jesus Christ to get a glimpse of that. And it's in that suffering that he paid on your behalf. It's in that agony that you get the most accurate picture of what true love actually is supposed to look like. And that's what he's saying here. It's the cross that gives us a perfect idea of love. So with that in mind, let's dive into it. Let's, rather than allowing pop culture and rom-coms and uh, romance novels, you know, rather than allowing all those things to inform our perspective of love, let's for a moment, for the next couple of minutes, let's allow the cross to inform us as to what true love actually is. Isaiah chapter number 53, verse 3 says this, Jesus was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I want you to notice this. 
Jesus went to the cross knowing full well that many would not reciprocate his love. Notice what the verse says here. It says he did this for us, but we hid our faces from him. He, we despised him. We didn't even esteem him. After all he did on our behalf, after all the agony that he went through, after all the suffering he endured, like we were like, who cares? He realized before he went to the cross that there would be many who would not reciprocate that love. Which brings us to our first thought, if you want to write these here in your notes, and that's simply this. Agape love doesn't demand reciprocation. Eros love, romantic, sexual, sensual love demands reciprocation. Phileo, brotherly love, I got your back, if you got my back, that demands reciprocation. But pure agape love doesn't demand reciprocation. Herein is love, not the type of love that we demonstrate, but the type of love that God demonstrates to us when he went to the cross, knowing a lot of us wouldn't reciprocate, knowing a lot of us would be able to care less, knowing that there would be millions of people in the world who would kind of snub their noses at what Jesus did. And yet he continued to go to the cross anyways, knowing that there would be thousands and millions who would not reciprocate that love in return. It did not keep him from loving anyways. Why? Because agape love doesn't demand reciprocation. Romans 5 verse 10 says it this way. For when we were enemies, when we were God's enemies, when we were acting against God, when we, were, when we wanted nothing to do with God, when we were treating him like our enemies, it says we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The Bible is saying in Romans, guess what? Even when you were acting like an enemy to God, he still loved you. Even when you were treating him like he was an enemy, he still adored you. He still pursued you. He still wanted you. He still cared about you. He still reached out for you when you were running from him, when you wanted nothing to do with him. Why? Because he doesn't look for a love to be reciprocated. Agape, pure, noble, unconditional love doesn't demand reciprocation. That's why Christ was willing to love you. He didn't care if you would love him back. Because he was loving you with a pure agape, agape love. Uh, when, I, when I was in second grade, uh, I, obviously during that season of my life, maybe, maybe some of the other guys in this room uh, would kind of share kind of my perspective on some of this. When I was in second grade, um, I used to believe uh, that girls had these things <laughs> called cooties, you know, and, and when, when, I was, when I was six and seven years old, uh, this was big. I mean, this was bigger than cancer. This was bigger than chicken pox. You know, I'll take chicken pox. I just don't want the cooties, right? You know, at six and seven years old and uh, wanted nothing to do with girls. I mean, it was just the, the thought of even being around them disgusted me, you know, and uh, I remember on one occasion, this is going to sound horrible, on one occasion, a girl touched me in second grade and I took the finger that she touched me with and I bent it all the way back and and, and broke her finger. He said, that's horrible. You broke her finger. I was not saved yet. I had not accepted Christ as my savior. <laughs> so it's all in the path, literally. 
What I did love at that time was baseball cards. I loved baseball cards. Any, any of you guys, when you were younger, really get into baseball cards? Some of you got into it. I, I was a huge baseball card fan. And back when I was a kid, I don't know how it is anymore. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, the Topps brand used to put bubble gum inside uh, the baseball card packs. How many of you remember these days when they put the bubble gum inside the packs? And so this, it was like a double whammy. You got baseball cards and you got candy. And that, that was like life got no better than a fresh pack of Topps baseball cards. And I just I loved them. Well, while I was in second grade, one of, one of the girls in my class, her name was Amy, uh, had a friend of hers send me a little note. It was one of these. I opened up the note and it said, Josh, will you be my boyfriend? And then it had a little box and with a yes. <laughs> you got one of these. There was another little box with a no, you know. I remember looking, I remember getting so mad that she would even think that I'd in a thousand years ever want to be her boyfriend. Like the thought was just so foreign to me. I was so mad. I, I, I think I wrote something like, I'd rather kiss a goat, you know, or something like that. I was just, I was just, ah, it was frustrating. And I was about to tear it up and kind of throw it away. And, and I remember before, as I was doing that, she looked and said, she said, if you do, I'll, I'll give you baseball cards every, every week. Oh, I was like torn. I mean, I like really hated girls, but I love baseball cards. I said, I said the, the, the kind with the bubble gum in them. She said, oh yeah. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> What's a guy to do, you know? So I thought to myself, okay. I said, we'll, we'll do it. <laughs> so, so what basically this consisted of is during breaks, instead of being able to play tag with my friends and run around on the baseball field, I had to sit by the flagpole next to her. <laughs> We didn't say a word. We didn't talk. We did not. I just, we just sat there. Didn't look at each other. But I was her boyfriend, I guess. I'd sit there. I wouldn't say a word. If one of my friends came by, I'd take the hood from my coat. I'd put it up over my head and just kind of shrink in there a little bit. At the end of the day, she'd hand me a, base, a pack of baseball cards and I'd run away. You know, and that, that, was, that was our relationship. After, four, after like four or five days, I was thinking to myself, you know what? I love baseball cards. Uh, the bubblegum's really, really cool. But I just can't do this relationship anymore. This is, this is too, too much. You know, the embarrassment, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I broke off our relationship, I think, after three or four days of this exchange. Now, I illustrate that, and I bring that story up to simply say this. Obviously, uh, that was not an agape relationship. I was not in that relationship for what I could give to it. I was entirely in that relationship for what I could get. I wanted baseball cards and I wanted bubble gum. And that was the only reason I was in that relationship. The reality is, as crazy as that sounds, a lot of us are in our relationships for basically the same reasons. Now, we've matured a little bit. It's not about baseball cards anymore. It's not about, you know bubble gum, it's not about candy, we've upped the ante a little bit. But at its core, we're in our relationships primarily not out of agape love. We're in our relationships for what we can get out of it. Well, he'll make me feel safe. Well, she'll give me sex. Well, he'll provide for me financially. Well, you know, she'll, she'll take care of the house. Well, he'll, you know, mow the lawns, wash the car. 
He'll make me feel like I'm a somebody. She'll make me feel like I matter. She'll make me feel like I have worth. I have value. He'll make me feel like I'm important. And the list goes on and on and on. But at the end of the day, at its core, it's basically about what we get out of it. And can I say, when the Apostle John said, no, agape love is not about what you get out of it. A pure agape love is loving even, and it, even when it's not going to be reciprocated. Agape love doesn't demand reciprocation. You see, can I make the case, and, and this might sound extreme, but can I make the case that if we only love when somebody loves us back, that what we are actually doing is loving ourselves. Whether we realize it or not, all we're really doing is rewarding the behavior we want more of. And we're all guilty of it. I know I am. To only love when we know we're going to get something in return is not agape love. It's self-love. You see, because God fully loves us, now think about this for a moment. Because God is always there to fill our emotional love tank, if we can call it that, with his compassion. Because no matter how much love we need, no matter how much our soul craves compassion, no matter how much of that love our soul desperately desires, Jesus Christ always gives us all the love, all the compassion, all that we would ever need or desire. And since we are always getting from God what we desperately need, we are now free to love someone else without expecting anything in return. Because we're already getting what we need from Jesus. So now I can love others not needing anything in return. Because my source of fulfillment, my source of adoration, my source of affection, my source of love does not come from a, if I can use this term a little bit here, it doesn't come from a uh, horizontal source. It comes from a vertical source. And since my love tank is being so filled with God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love and his affection and his kindness, and I'm looking vertically for that fulfillment, I'm looking uh, vertically for that satisfaction. I'm looking vertically here for that contentment. My life then begins to over, overflow with love toward others. It's not about what they give me. I'm loving them not because of who they are. I'm loving them because I have so much extra to give. Because I have been loved so much, it becomes the overflow into other aspects of my life. And I'm going to say this, until you understand this, no relationship's going to work for you. You'll go through a season of euphoria where you're getting something out of it. You're getting something new. You're getting something fresh. You're getting something exciting. And for a season, you'll kind of get that, you know, high. And then every time it'll crash and burn. And I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about any relationship you find yourself into. Because yes, God loves you. And if you're not basking and just totally saturating your heart and your mind and your soul and that love he has for you, until you are fully filled with his love, experiencing, accepting, recognizing, enjoying, basking, abiding in his great love for you, if it's not filling you up, 
until you're experiencing his love, it's what flows to you has got to flow through you. But if it's not flowing to you, you're not going to allow it to flow through you. See, agape love doesn't demand reciprocation. It doesn't need reciprocation. It already gets everything it needs from its primary source, Jesus Christ. But if you're not anchored to that source, if you're not abiding in it, enjoying it, recognizing it, noticing it, living in it, basking in that, if, you, if all of a sudden you get distracted and you're focusing here and focusing there and not living in this place, this space of grace, you're going to find that very quickly the ability to love others is going to run out. It only is going to last as long as they're giving something to you because you are looking to that person or those people to be the source by which you can give back. But when you are looking to Christ to be your source to give back, guess what? That never runs out. It doesn't demand reciprocation. It doesn't need it. It's free. It is liberated from needing other people to do certain things in order to respond correctly because it already has everything it needs in its relationship with Christ. You see, my friends, being unconditionally loved, experiencing that unconditional love sets us free to love unconditionally. You try to love unconditionally without regularly abiding, experiencing, enjoying, basking in all the love Christ has for you, you're not going to be able to do this thing very long. I'm not standing here saying, love, try to love more unconditionally. You can do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You guys are awesome. You can make it happen. If you just try a little harder and you push a little longer, maybe next time you can make it work. I'm here to say this. You can't do it. I can't do it. We can't do this. Only Christ can. So it's only to the extent that we can enjoy and experience and abide in all the love that he has for us that eventually it'll start to seep out. And what flowed to us will eventually flow through us. And it'll begin to just happen as we abide in his love. Being unconditionally loved by God liberates us to love others unconditionally. That's, the, that's it. Notice next. First John says, here in his love, John says, I'm going to show you what real love is. It's not the type of love that we show to God or we show to others. Here in his love, it's the type of love that Jesus showed to us when he went to the cross and suffered and in agony and in pain purchased your salvation. The apostle John says, that's a true picture of love. Not what you're going to find in rom-coms. Not what you're going to see in romantic novels. Not what you're going to learn from your past. Here in his true love, what Jesus did on the cross has to inform our deepest notion as to what love really is. So let's keep looking at the cross for a moment. You see, agape love doesn't demand reciprocation. It doesn't need it. Because when it's being loved, it can then love. Number two, agape love is willingly unleashed upon sin. Here's what Romans 5, 8 says. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that, notice this, while we were yet sinners. You see, Jesus didn't wait for us to get our act together in order to love us. Jesus didn't wait till we got everything perfect and to love us. Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ loves us right where we're at today? Isn't that awesome? To think that I, I don't have to do something to earn God's love. While we were yet sinners, when we were in our selfishness, when we were in our pride, when we were in our lust, when we were in our agony, when we were in our pain, when we were in these places, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was in that moment that Jesus Christ went to the cross on our behalf, which leads us here to the second point I want to talk about, and that's simply this. Agape love is willingly unleashed upon sin. 
Jesus was willingly ready to unleash love even when he was being sinned against. And agape, unconditional, pure, noble love is love when it can love when you've been sinned against. If you're loving only when the other person is acting perfect and doing everything right and pulling all, you know, dotting their I's and crossing their T's, if that's the only moment in which you can love, I'm going to say this, it isn't agape. It isn't pure. It isn't noble. It might be eros. It might be phileo. There's a place for those things, but it's not agape. Agape love is only agape love when it can love when it's being sinned against. See, the reality is this. You might be in a position, you're like, I think I love my spouse. I think I love my brother and sister. I think I love my family. The reality is you don't actually know if you unconditionally love them. You don't actually know if you purely and nobly love them until they've sinned against you. It is in that moment. Now, you might love them unconditionally. You might love them purely. You might love them nobly, but you don't actually know it until they sin against you. And your response to that reveals if what's actually happening. That's when you know what type of love it actually is that you're demonstrating. Agape love is unwillingly, is willingly leashed upon sin. First Peter 4, 8 says this, And above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for charity love covers the multitude of sins. It was the theologian Gilbert Chesterton who said this, true love means to love that which is unlovable, or it's actually no virtue at all. True love is loving sinners. Imperfect, human broken individuals. That is the type of love that Jesus loved you with. And that's the type of love. The love he flows to you is the love he wants to flow through you as well. Agape love is unwilling, is willingly leash upon sin. I had a friend of mine asked him one time, he said, he said, he said, he said, he said has your wife ever slapped you? I said, No. I mean, she's high-fived me in the face a few times. But... <laughs> <laughs> Slap me, right? I mean, you know, and I'm joking a little bit. We've all done things that we deserved. We definitely didn't deserve to be treated kindly. Have you ever had a moment where you knew you wronged somebody? And yet, they poured such mercy and grace and forgiveness. You remember how that just melted your heart? Like, like when they start getting angry, all, when, you know, when, when you did something, you knew in the bottom of your heart, you knew you had offended them. And I, I, unfortunately, I've done this with my wife and I've done something, I've said something, and I just knew in that moment, the moment it came out, that was the wrong thing to say. That was the wrong thing to do. And I'm, I'm telling you what, in those moments where she just pours out such incredible mercy, and words of forgiveness. Man, it just melts my heart. It's just like, oh. It changes me in ways that arguments and fights and doesn't have the capacity to do. It changes it from the inside out. And this is the way Jesus loves you. He loves you in this deep way. You say, well, if I love people and they're sinning against me, he says, that, that'll make my love weak. 
you know what? It actually makes your love appear more beautiful when you're loving somebody who doesn't deserve it. Because it kind of looks like Jesus when the other person's acting right, but it really looks like Jesus when the other person doesn't. It re- when Jesus was being spat against and he was being beaten, when he was being tortured, when he went to the cross and he said, I love you. Now let me just put a brief caveat in this. Love doesn't necessarily mean you allow somebody to hurt you. If you're here today and you find yourself in some situation of physical, domestic abuse, the best way to love that person is by getting out of that environment. I'm not saying make yourself a victim to that. But what I'm saying is as you respond to that, you're responding not because you hate them and because you're angry with them and you're bitter at them and you're mad at them. You're doing it because you love them and so you're pulling yourself out of that situation because you love them and because you care about them and you want what's best for them and you want them to get help and because you want them to get help and you want them to get better, you remove yourself from that situation, all right? So I'm not saying play the victim, but what I am saying is this, you can do what you do with a spirit of love and forgiveness, and mercy, even in that place. Love, love, herein is love. Agape love is willingly unleashed upon sin. Then lastly, lastly today, notice this. John makes the case, he says, the cross is what provides the ultimate model of what love really is. In Luke chapter number 23, verse 34, Jesus says at the cross, he says, Father, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's interesting as you study this phrase in the Greek, and I'm going to get a little nerdy on you for just a minute here, but the Greek word here is ephemi. If you study this particular term grammatically in the Greek, it's an imperfect tense meaning that it has continuous action in the past. That is to say this, it was as if Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. As you study this out, he's saying this more than once. This phrase reveals that this is something Jesus was continually saying as he went to the cross. That is to say it this way. In other words, as Jesus was praying this prayer over them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. He was saying it over and over and over. As they were mocking him, Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them. When they were beating him, he was praying, Father, forgive them. When they spit upon him, he was saying, Father, forgive them. When they took took his clothing and shamed him before the crowds. He was literally praying, Father, forgive them. Oh, when they took the cross and laid it on his shoulders, demanding that he carry it to Golgotha, he was praying, Father, forgive them. When Jesus looked down from the cross and saw the crowds with whom was, he was dying for, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My friend, if you're a believer today, God has forgiven you of all your pride. He's forgiven you of all your sin. He has forgiven you of all your arrogance. He has forgiven you of all your lust. He has forgiven you of all your gossip. He has forgiven you of all your selfishness. And again and again and again and again, he continues to forgive all your past sins, all your present sins, and all your future sins have been forgiven by the person of Jesus Christ, which leads us to our final thought today, and that is simply this. Agape love forgives the inexcusable. They don't deserve it. Neither did we. 
And when you bask and enjoy all the forgiveness that you've received from God, then and only then will you have the spiritual fuel and capacity to love and to forgive those around you who also don't deserve it. If you're here today and all you're hearing is forgive somebody who doesn't deserve it and treat somebody good who's sinning against you, and you can try and you can do it, you're going to miss the whole point. The whole point of this is not to just give. The point is to receive from God. This is all you have received. Now you need to bask in it. You need to enjoy it. You need to saturate your heart in it. You need to notice it. You need to re-come to a place again and, and continually enjoy all that you have in Christ. Because as you live in that place, then and only then will you have the capacity then to love one another. Agape loves, forgives the inexcusable. Colossians 3.13 says this, forbearing one another. That means carry the weight that other people's brokenness and weakness puts upon you. Why? Forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Notice, just as Christ forgave you, as you fixate on that reality of all that God's forgiven you of, you will have the capacity to forgive others. If you forget of all that Christ is forgiving you of, you will no longer have the capacity to forgive one another. If you forget how he loved you even when you sinned against him, if you forget that, you will no longer have the capacity to love those who have sinned against you. It's only in your ability to enjoy. It's only in your ability to notice. It's only in your ability to saturate yourself in the great, deep, awesome love of God that you will then have the spiritual capacity to love those around you when they least deserve it. Forgiveness, my friend, is not a feeling. It is the conscious decision to live with the consequences of another person's sin. That is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the conscious decision to live with the consequences of another person's sin. You say, I don't want to live with the consequences of their sin. I hate to, sh- I hate to break this to you. You're going to live with those consequences whether you want, them, want to or not. If they've sinned against you, then you're going to live with them. The question is, how are you going to live with them? You're going to live with them with a heart of bitterness and anger and upset, frustration, or are you going to live with it in a place of release, in a place of freedom, in a place of wholeness that is only possible through letting go and forgiveness? You say, I can't let go because you have forgotten how much he let go of on your behalf. You say, I can't forgive that person. You won't be able to until you go and you remind yourself and you live and you enjoy and how much he has forgiven you. You say, oh, man, if I do what you're talking about, if I, if I, if I forgive the unforgivable, if I, if I love without expecting anything in return, if I love somebody, even when they're sinning against me, I'll be taken advantage of. I'll be treated like a doormat. I'll be such a victim. And here's what I want to say. You might be right. You say, I'll be destroyed. Just like they destroyed Jesus, you might also be destroyed. But I want to give you this hope. When Jesus went to the cross, they crushed him. They destroyed him. They killed him. His life was over. That was a Friday. Saturday. But do you remember something happened on Sunday? Something happened. Something happened on Sunday because he allowed himself to love in an agape manner, because he allowed himself to love in a noble way, because he allowed himself to be loving even when he was sinned against. His death was the seed for resurrection. 
And what I want to say to you today is you're like, if I do what the Bible is talking about, it will destroy my marriage. It will crush my relationships. It will destroy my psyche. It'll, it'll kill my soul. And I want to say this. Yes, you might be right. It might destroy everything that needs to be destroyed. But what you'll be doing is planting a seed for a resurrection. Some of you need to let your old marriage die so the resurrected marriage can come to life. You don't need a new necessarily way of doing things. You need a new marriage, a new marriage that can only be brought about by resurrection. You need a resurrection to your relationship with children. You need a resurrection to your relationship with parents. You need resurrection in your relationship with siblings. You need resurrection in your relationship with spouse. You need resurrection in your relationship with friends. You need resurrection in your relationship with coworkers and neighbors. But that resurrection doesn't take place unless there's a willing crucifixion. And the reason so few Christians experience resurrected life, abundant life, new life, is because they're so holding on to the old thing. And I'm saying this is a path of crucifixion. It's called a Calvary road. But it's crucifixion that paves the way to resurrection. This is the path to your new marriage. You've got to let the old one die. I want new relationships. I want relationships that are filled with life. Then it might be that this path leads to killing the relationships that are there. Or at least the way in which they operate. So that you can have newness of life in Jesus Christ. In 1912, the Titanic held many tragic stories, many of that you're familiar with. But one of the most touching was that of the Strausses. As the Titanic was going down, Miss Mabel Bird, who was the maid to the Strausses, was helped into a lifeboat by Mrs. Strauss. In fact, as she told the story later to reporters, she said it was amazing to see how calm Mrs. Strauss was as they helped one couple after another, one child, parents after another, and filled up four lifeboats as the Titanic was going down. Finally, as the fifth boat, the last one of that section on the ship, was about to leave, Mr. Strauss begged his wife to get on the boat. Finally, she put one foot into the lifeboat and was beginning to fully make her way into that lifeboat when she looked back. She looked back at the man whom she had been married to for the majority of her life. And it was in that moment she stepped back out of the lifeboat and refused to get in. He pleaded with her, literally with tears running down his cheek, to get into the lifeboat. But instead, she passed her blankets, her coat, and her wraps to Miss Bird, who was in the boat. The witnesses said Mrs. Strauss looked deep into the eyes of her husband with just such love and compassion and said to her, said to him, I'll not get into this boat. We've been together through many great years, and now that we're old, I'm not going to leave you here. Where you go, I will go. The last thing that onlookers saw was the two of them shivering in the cold, embraced one another as the lifeboat was lowered into the ocean. They were last seen arm in arm on the deck of that ship as it disappeared into its icy waters. I want to say to you today, in in, in marriage, you will go through storms. In your relationships, you are going to experience struggles, and they're going to be intense. But I want to encourage you with this. Don't walk away in those moments. 
walk through them together.